if you want to take your Bible and open up to Revelation chapter 13. I remember being a child and going to my aunt's beach house over by Tillamook and during one of those very warm Oregon coast evenings that we have over there, uh, during the rain and the drizzle, going up in the crow's nest of my aunt's cabin, they kind of built this crow's nest with a, a room inside that we'd sleep over and, and telling ghost stories with uh, my cousins. It was so much fun, you know, and I'm pretty brave, so it didn't affect me at all for the rest of my life. And I remember to this day, one of my cousins telling me this story of a man that was driving through the country in his old beat up truck and it was running out of gas and he just knew that this thing wasn't going to go very far. And, and he comes across an old dilapidated farmhouse and, you know, maybe there's some help in here and maybe some fuel in, uh, around and I can get home. And so he goes and of course it's a dark and stormy night in the story and and he goes to the farmhouse, and there seems to have been some activity around, and he knocks on the door, nobody answers, he opens the door, hello, is anybody home, and closes the door behind him, and looks around, and things seem to be all disheveled, and, and tore apart within the home, there seems to have been a struggle, and suddenly he's forgetting the gas, and maybe he needs to help, and he's creaking and crawling across the floor, and looking for any individuals, and going up the stairs, and of course they're creaking and groaning as he goes on up, and he hears moaning and growling and he doesn't know what to do but open a door and there he finds a giant monster right furry and big and giant teeth and giant claws and about 12 feet taller than him with horns coming out of his head and he just turns and bolts down the stairs and he goes across the floor and out the front door and the whole time that monster is groaning and growling and snarling at his feet and he runs out to his truck and gets that thing started and he knows he only has got a little bit of limited fuel but that monster's on his tail so as, as far as he can get away, as soon as he can get away, he gets going down and looks in his rearview mirror and he sees this monster just coming up after him and it's just about to grab the rearview mirror off the truck and finally his truck runs out of gas and he just knows that monster's coming and and he pulls over the side of the road and he can just hear it snarling and as it comes up it rips the door off the side of the truck and reaches in to get him and says, tag, you're it. And then runs away. After I changed my PJs and went to sleep that night. The big beast, the big monster has always been in my mind, obviously. And the same story is very similar in Revelation chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, Tag, you're it. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't say that in this story. And so as we read the book of Revelation, we're in this still a parenthetical set of chapters. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 10 through 14, they... They really don't advance kind of the chronology of Revelation as much as they kind of zoom out 37,000 feet and, and look at the main picture of what will be happening during the tribulation period. And something that will be happening during that time is that a beast will rise up out of the sea. And 
And what in the world is going on here? What is John seeing? And what will he see over the course of the next chapter? And I just want to put this out there that there is a main idea in it that you can just always default back to. And that is that the devil is going to come and imitate Jesus in his raging against God. But Jesus will be victorious in the end and will vindicate those who resist Satan's lies. So as this beast is going to come out of the sea, and we're going to see all kinds of strange and odd things, just go back to that and, and just let your heart return to pumping normal, you know, and, and, uh, and just know that, you know, Jesus is going to win in the end, all right? That's, that's the big deal here. But we see this beast rising up out of the sea. The word antichrist strikes all sorts of imagery into our minds. In fact, I did a quick Google image uh, search today, Antichrist, and it was quite interesting. You know, you've got everything from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, you know, and everybody in between. Uh, everybody's accusing everybody else of being the Antichrist. But the word Antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation. So where are we getting this from? Why are we talking about the Antichrist so often and and I'm just, you know, I'm going to be getting into it today. So, but where is that? That word's not even here. Well, John the Revelator actually uses this word in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Okay. So he uses that word Antichrist and he's referring to who we're going to be seeing in the book of Revelation. And the, the, sim, uh, the symbolism, the imagery here is that of a beast, okay? So this beast is the Antichrist. Some have thought the Antichrist to over the millennia have maybe been an evil person or rather political power, an empire or a political power. Some have thought maybe the Antichrist would come and be an impersonal force that is alive today in the world. Some sort of presence or spirit or the evil spirit of this age. John also said in that same letter, he said that they are literal people who are forerunners of the final Antichrist. So there's Antichrists all over who are kind of like John the Baptist's uh, the Antichrist. It's been believed over, you know, in different thoughts that the Antichrist is the final and climactic embodiment of satanic power and opposition to God in a person's form. And it's interesting in all of these different ideas that there's actually fluidity and even overlap, especially in Revelation chapter 13, to all these ideas where the beast or the antichrist seems to be both a political power, a political empire, and at the same time, a person. And this isn't all unusual. You know, a lot of times when we think of empires, we think of a person associated with that empire. When we think of Rome, we think of all of the Caesars, maybe even Caesar Nero, and we think of uh, the Third Reich, we think of Hitler, when we think of Soviet Russia, we think of 
you know, Joseph Stalin. When we think of the United States, we might go to George Washington. Bernard McGinn, in his book, Antichrist, 2,000 Years of the Human Fascination with Evil, you've read it. He says, there are Old Testament types in men like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and even the intertestamental Antiochus Epiphanes. Then, Bernard goes on to say, the parade begins. Notable suggestions include Nero as the Antichrist, Domitian, Constantine, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Martin Luther has even been accused, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Gorbachev, Jimmy Carter, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Saddam Hussein, Barack Obama, you know you did it, Pat Robertson, Donald Trump, the great artistic rendering of Trump with horns and a, and a forked tongue online today. It's just very edifying. Many believed in what was called the Nero, Redi uh, I don't know if I'm saying it, Redividius. It was a myth in which Nero returns from the dead as the Antichrist. In fact, in the Armenian language, the word Nero became and remains synonymously the word for Antichrist. So in Armenian, you would just say Nero, and everyone would, you know, it's him, right? On November 1st, back in 1999, Newsweek magazine's cover story was called Prophecy. And it reported that 40% of U.S. adults believed that the world would end in the Battle of Armageddon between Jesus Christ and the Antichrist. Newsweek also reported that 19% of Americans believed that the Antichrist was on the world at that moment. One thing is certain. Anyone who's made a specific identification of the Antichrist has been wrong. And a lot of times it's been kind of harmful and hurtful. So chapter 13 is going to introduce us to this character that we often know as the Antichrist, okay? Now, chapter breaks were put there by men when we read the Bible. And so a lot of times it's good to maybe go on the computer, find some source that doesn't have any verses or chapter breaks, and just read it and maybe see just how more fluid it is as you would read it. And in this case, it's true. You could go from chapter 12 right into chapter 13. 13 starts with this word, then. All right, so that obviously picks up from somewhere else. And so the word then makes us look back to, for instance, let's just hop back to verse 15, that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on the horns ten crowns. So the interesting thing is the word I in verse 13 is actually the word he. And so going from chapter 12 into 13, it wasn't John that was standing on the sand of the sea. 
It was this serpent or the dragon from chapter 12 that was standing on the sand of the sea. So then he was standing on the sand of the sea and John saw a beast rising. And so real quick, we have the sea. A sailor went to CCC to see what he could CCC. Now, the sea is often associated with evil back in the ancient world. It's been called the reservoir of chaos. In chapter 17, we're told by John the Revelator that the sea is actually the great abyss that we've read of before, the bottomless pit that this beast will come up out of. And in scripture, this sea often represents nations of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and their ethnic, national, political, and social chaos that goes on in them. So you kind of have, if you're looking all across scripture, you've got that the sea represents um, the nations, represents chaos and disorder. And in fact, John's going to just help us with interpretation in a few chapters. Uh, The bottomless pit is all part of this all that this beast arises out of. And so thus begins the biography of the beast. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, and you might just flip back there, Daniel would see images and visions of beasts rise up out of the sea. Happened regularly for him. Ought to take an antacid before he goes to bed at night. But first, before he sees the beast out of the sea in chapter 7 and 11, we want to get a little bit of historical background of what this beast might be uh from daniel chapter two okay um and i know that this is just crazy you can't read it i struggle to read it but at the very least it might just help a little bit okay okay so in daniel chapter two it comes after daniel chapter one after daniel has been led away captive out of judah by babylon babylon came and and conquered judah and they took judah away captive and Daniel and a few of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken away. Daniel chapter 1 is this incredible drama that takes place of Daniel and and his friends being made eunuchs to serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And they said, you know what? You're trying to to make us into these great men to serve you, but you're giving us food that has been offered to idols to eat. We just can't do that as Hebrew guys. So, So could we do a little test here where... We just eat fruits and vegetables, and then you, you come back and see if we're still doing okay and developing into those fine men that you'd like us to be. And, and uh, that king takes that bet, and uh, some time goes by, and they come back, and they're found just in better form and appearance than anybody else. And so as they stood up for the Lord, they're given favor by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, chapter 2 rolls around. King Nebuchadnezzar, he forgot to take his antacid that night, and he has a crazy dream, Okay. It just shakes him up. It rocks his world. And when he wakes up, he tells all of his wise men, all of his sorcerers, all of his guys that should be able to read his mind. He says, I've had a horrible dream and you better tell me uh, what the dream was and the interpretation of it or I'm going to kill all y'all. Okay. And so they said, oh, good king, live forever. You know, they said, how about you tell us the dream And then we tell you the interpretation. And he's like, I wasn't born yesterday. If you're really a sorcerer or magician, tell me the dream. 
And so all of these guys are about to be killed because they don't know the dream, except for Daniel. Daniel's a guy that the Lord has spoken to through dreams and visions and interpretation. And he is brought to the king. And he says, I can tell you your dream and the interpretation. Now, Daniel chapter 2, and I don't believe I have it on there, so don't worry about it. But in Daniel chapter 2, he says, oh, king, the dream that you've had tells us, quote, what will be in the latter days, okay? What will be in the latter days? In 229, it says, it would be what will come to pass after this. And then later on, it says, and your dream tells us what will be. Okay, so this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, it's prophetic. It's futuristic. It's what will be in the last days. It'll be what will happen after this. And it'll be uh, in, in what will be, okay? And so he says, he gives the, the dream, okay? So here's what the dream was. Uh, we have the image behind me, and you'll see in the first column a statue, all right? The st uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image or a great statue, and in, in its head was made up of solid gold, all right? And then its chest was made up of silver. Its belly and thighs was prophetic of me, you know, just bronze all around. Okay, no, not really, just, and it's a bit flabby and kind of, no, uh, this belly and thighs is bronze. And then the legs are made up of iron. And then some feet. Isn't this just an incredible artistic rendering? One of the best, actually. Uh, its feet are made up partly of iron and partly of clay. Okay? And then in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this rock that was carved out, it was made without hands. So this very nice stone made without hands. It comes and it rolls into this image and it crushes this image. It pulverizes this statue so that it's like fine like chaff and the wind just blows this image away. And then this very nice stone that was made without hands becomes a mountain that covers the whole world. All right. Easy peasy, right? That's just easy stuff right there. Okay. Now, the beautiful thing is that Daniel knew the dream knew the image, knew everything about it, and then he gives the interpretation. Now, this all has to do, and really everything that we're studying, ultimately it has to do with God's plan for Israel, okay? All right, uh, Daniel was part of Israel. Uh, the, the northern 10 tribes of Israel had been taken away by Assyria because they had forsaken God and they began to worship idols and they wouldn't repent, though the prophets called them to repent. So they were carried away to Assyria. And then the lower tribes of Judah and Benjamin, just called Judah, they're in Jerusalem in that southern area of Israel. They were given a, like another hundred years and they didn't repent. And so Babylon came in and carried them away captive. All right. So that's Daniel was part of that. Ezekiel was a part of that. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys were a part of that carrying away. And then so everything that is going to come to pass has to do with what's going on with Israel. Okay. And so here's the dream. He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the king of kings, okay? He says this, you are the head of gold, okay? And so 
Nebuchadnezzar is this head of gold. He is, out of all the kings that are come after him, he's got the strongest empire that will ever be out of these ones that are made up in the image. And he's really like the finest one of them all. And you are that head of gold, but one's going to come after you. And it's prophesied that this is going to be uh, the Medo-Persian Empire led by Cyrus. All right. In fact, Cyrus is even prophesied of by name that he would be the head of this empire. This is before Cyrus uh, was even on the scene, okay? So Cyrus comes in, and he is going to conquer through radical miracle stuff. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. Uh, He is going to come, and he is going to conquer Babylon. Okay, so who is over Israel at this time? Who's over Judah? Well, now it's the Medes and the Persians, okay? The Medo-Persian Empire. Well, then as history tracks right along, along comes this six-pack rib ab. The core strength is just, you could do your laundry on the abs of this image, okay? This uh, this bronze belly of this image is uh, the Grecian Empire. They would come in next, and they would wipe out the Medo-Persian Empire. They would be led by Alexander the Great, all right? Alexander the Great, some 30 years old, he conquered the entire world in 10 years. And at the, uh, within his 30 years, he, he sat there after conquering the world, and he wept in the rain because there was no more land to conquer. He ended up catching pneumonia while he was weeping out in the rain, and he would die soon thereafter at the young age of about 30. So this 30-year-old belly and thighs of bronze came in with Greece and conquered um, the Medo-Persian Empire, Who came after Greece and conquered the land and was over the Israeli people? Well, it was these uh, legs of iron. Also, uh, many of the Nepal team are prophesied of here. Just before a Nepal trip, you know, no, just kidding. We we, little little saggy and flabby still. Okay, but uh, no, it speaks of the Roman Empire. Okay, the Roman Empire and uh, and their strength that they had. They they never quite attained to uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. They never quite attained to the Grecian Empire. They were still very strong, but they still had some weaknesses. And then there's an empire that's prophesied, and it would be continued. It would be considered what would happen in the latter days. And it is these. It is the. Forgive my grammar. It is these. It are these. Yeah, you figured out. Feet partly mixed with iron, partly mixed with clay. It doesn't mix very well, does it? All right. How many toes are on these feet? Ten toes. Okay. These are numbers and these are things that are going to be repeated later on in the book of Daniel. And it's also something that we see even today in our chapter, that number 10 and having to do with this beast that's coming up. Okay. Uh, And so, of course, we know that uh, that speaks of the revived Roman Empire that is going to have a league of nations associated with it. It's not going to be the Roman Empire that it once was. It's going to have some weaknesses. It's going to have some mingling of some other nations and some other, other leaders in it. And during that time, during that last person that's over Israel, that last kingdom that's over Israel, the rock. The rock will come. It was not made with man's hands. And it will come and it will just pulverize every kingdom of the earth. No king, no kingdom can stand against the rock. When I was in middle school, I played the saxophone. And pretty good, I might say. Although they haven't had me on the worship team with it yet. You know, it's a little bit too... Okay. But I played this song. I was actually specifically trained after school to play this song 
Jesus is the rock and he rolls my blues away, okay? Jesus is the rock and he rolls my blues away. It's a great one. I'll probably do it for communion next week. And uh, Jesus is the rock, right? He's our solid rock. He's our cornerstone. And all of the other kingdoms are going to fail in comparison to who he is. And one day he will be set up as a mountain over the whole world and he will rule and reign forever. So it's kind of, it's important to have Daniel chapter two in mind because it's kind of like the simplified version of Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter eight, Daniel chapter 11, Revelation chapter 13. It all kind of, there's going to be a whole lot of other crazy stuff going on. And if you can just kind of remember head of gold, Babylon, uh, chest of silver, uh, the Medo-Persian empire, belly and thighs of bronze, Greece under Alexander the Great, legs of iron, the Roman Empire, feet partly mixed with iron, partly mixed with clay, and that one day, at the end of the day, that big old rock's going to come, he's going to roll the blues away, right? He's going to bring in his everlasting kingdom. Who's ready for a break? <laughs> All right, too bad you ain't getting one. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, where Daniel has a vision of his own. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominions was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, a hangnail, if you will. Just kidding. Coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. All right, so... If we can go back to our image that we have of the fantastic uh, animal kingdom. There we go. Uh, we have just seen four beasts, pretty radical, pretty crazy. And these beasts each symbolize pretty much the same order of empires that would be uh, kind of in charge of Israel. Uh, during that time. So uh, we know that the lion, the first beast that was seen represents Babylon from around 597 BC. It has eagle's wings. It was very majestic. And then something happened to those wings. They were plucked off of it 
And it was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given. Now, something we know about the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, something we know about this lion and the wings is that he was so prideful. And he sat there and he looked over his empire and he said, look at what I've done in my strength. That the Lord says, ah, you shouldn't have said that because now I'm going to have to humble you. (laughs) All right. And as you read the story, there was a dream that was had. And Daniel interpreted it. And it was that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be made, actually to do the reverse, he was going to be made to go walk on all fours like an ox. And he was to eat grass like an ox. And his hair was going to grow out and become thick like the feathers of an eagle. And his fingernails, like many of you in this room, frankly, uh, would grow very long like the talons of eagles. And for years he would just... Until finally the Lord humbled him. Finally, the Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and he finally, he was given a man's heart. He was given a heart that was soft and tender to the Lord, and he humbled himself before God and became a worshiper of Yahweh. It's an incredible story of Nebuchadnezzar, the lion, but that speaks of his humiliation. And then this other beast, like a bear coming in, speaking of strength and uh, sort of that mauling that those bears do speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus and how he would eat the three main cities of Babylon. These three ribs would be upon his mouth. Then would come this leopard, just very swift and fast, conquering the whole world in his speed. Alexander the Great with Greece and the different heads that he has speak of the empire that would be divided up into four after he would uh, passed away in his young age of 30. This dominion become very strong, then would become uh, another beast, having uh, iron teeth and ten horns, and this speaks of Rome. Something we know that's going to come out of Rome with these feet mixed partly of iron and partly of clay is the beast that we're speaking of today in Revelation chapter 13. We're going to see something that marks this beast is he's got a mouth on him. He's got a mouth on him, and he speaks pompous, arrogant words. Something about these, uh, within Rome, these ten empires that will be, there will be ten kings, and when the Antichrist comes up, he's going to pluck three of those kings out. He's going to just take them out as he comes up to power, and, uh, and he's going to do a lot that you read of in chapter 7 there. Now, if you flip back, into Revelation chapter 13, we see that the beast that's coming out of the sea has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns. And you got to just have a little fun later and look up some of the images that have been drawn of this thing. I don't want to distract you. Um, But when you study Bible prophecy and you study these various beasts, heads, horns, and crowns, speak of kingdoms, kings, and powers, okay? Uh, And as you just keep reading the prophecies, the Bible ends up interpreting itself and gives you the understanding. But you've got to do your work. You've got to be a note taker. You've got to be someone that's writing these things down and able to say, oh man, over here it's saying that this was a king, but back here it said it was a horn. Okay, and you see that a few times and you're able to go, the horns are kings, Ah, you know. Oh, the heads are kingdoms. And you begin to put these puzzle pieces together as you do your homework, okay? 
Um, Bible prophecy is not impossible to understand, but it does require some work. The ten horns that we read of off of this beast speak of great power. And of this great power, there are seven heads. And also the ten horns speak of perhaps ten kingdoms that are a part of this league of nations. All right? Uh, the ten toes, the ten horns. Seven heads, it's been said, may draw from the seven-headed monster mythology in ancient Near Eastern texts. It also speaks of great power, but with the added connotations of ferocity and intelligence. The ten crowns convey great authority and political influence. Now, the ten horns are this future political alliance. We'll see it later on in the scriptures as well in the book of Revelation. These ten different political alliances consort with the beast who's going to enjoy a short reign with them. H.A. Ironside writes in his coming Federation of Nations, he says, after the church is gone in the book of Revelation, there will indeed be a great confederation of the nations that have sprung out of the old Roman Empire, which will be satanic in origin and character, and it will be the devil's last card. Ere he's obliged to own his complete defeat, it is of this the present portion treats. A little, little poetry from H.A. Ironside. So this is like the devil's last, I mean, this is his last battle. This is his last fight. He's really got to try to dig deep. He knows he's got a little bit of time. We studied back in chapter 12. And he's got this plan that he's going to try to take over the world. On this beast, this ten heads, there's a, uh, rather seven heads, there's a blasphemous name written. It's a name that when you look at it, you, oh my, you whip out your little fan and you fan, oh my, oh, how inappropriate, right? How could they talk about the Lord in this way? It's blasphemy, there's slander. At the heart of these kingdoms, there's reviling reputations against God. Like many of the Roman emperors from times past and monarchs of kingdoms before, rulers often blasphemously call themselves divine names, demand worship, and dishonor the true and living God. And this guy will really be the fulfillment of all those kings and antichrists that have come before him. If you go back to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, we read of this beast as the cocky king this king will do according to his own will he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak blasphemies against the god of gods so this pompous arrogant little horn with a mouth on him he's going to take three kings out as he comes into power among the ten and he is going to magnify himself above God. Now, who does that remind you of? I will be like the Most High. Right? We've been studying this the last few weeks. It's Lucifer or Satan had that same heart. And we study here in Revelation that it was, the, it was the dragon that's conjuring this thing up out of the sea and creating him to be this way in his ruling and reigning. And so this beast also says, I will exalt myself above every god and speak blasphemies against the God of gods. 
When you go back to Daniel chapter 7, there's an interpretation of all those beasts that we saw. You had the lion and the wings and the humiliation of him. You have the bear with the ribs in his mouth. You've got the leopard who's so swift with his wings and heads, his foreheads. Uh, you've got the crazy, weird beast that there wasn't, you know, it was a little bit hard to uh, decipher in that. And there's interpretation for this. And we studied this back in chapter 6 of Revelation, so hopefully it's a little bit of a reminder. But in Daniel chapter seven nineteen, Daniel wants to know about the fourth beast that he saw. He says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. This one was exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. I know some people, when they've drawn pictures of this, they've used like a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex as kind of the, you know, with iron teeth and just, you know, kind of as the, the what would be the, the image to kind of uh, be the picture of this. And uh, and so uh, the ten horns that were on its head and other horns which came up before which three fell, namely that horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and that same horn was making war against the saints and was prevailing against them. Put that in your brain bank. We'll see that later on in our Revelation chapter today. He warred against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Okay, so if you jump down to verse 23, uh, here's some help with this. The angel said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. And we know that Rome did that. But here we have 10 horns, 10 kings that shall arise from this kingdom. Another will arise after them. He's going to be different from the first ones. He shall subdue three kings. You guys are getting this, right? I mean, these are just different passages that are saying the same thing. And he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall, this is important, intend to change times and laws. In all of his pompous, arrogant, lifting himself above God, this guy's going to come on the scene and he's going to do things different than anyone's ever done it before. Well, you can't do that. We've never, oh, you, no, no what the, we've never, this isn't right. This isn't how we've, all, it, oh. And he's like, I don't care. I'm going to rule the world. But if you want to rule the world, you got to do things different. It's essentially his philosophy. Okay. Second Thessalonians chapter two is a good passage to be familiar with in our study of the Antichrist. I know when you say the word Antichrist, it makes you think of some weirdos, right? Like, I've heard from some weirdos talk about the Antichrist. Hopefully, I'm not in that camp yet, right? It hasn't been too weird, right? Just beasts and images and lions and horns. And, okay, this is just Bible stuff here, all right? Okay. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be sh soon shaken of mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as from us, as though the day had come. So the Thessalonians had been told, what are you waiting around for? The day of the Lord has, always, has already come. And, and this is like all that there is. And so the Thessalonian church were really discouraged by that. 
He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. So there's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be a great falling away of people who say they're Christians. And can you please remember that for the next two weeks as we're going through this chapter? They say they're Christians. Okay? But they're going to fall away from the faith. That day will not come, the day of the Lord will not come until that happens first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this is that pompous horn. This is that cocky king. This is the son of perdition. This is the man of sin. And in the end, in the end of days, but right when the day of the Lord happens, he's going to come on the scene. Many believe that he's on this, maybe even now, if this is the day of the Lord, which I believe it is. So he would be somewhere out there, not quite the man that we will know him to be, but he's out there. Okay. And this, you know, you can hold that loosely. Okay. Don't get all weird about it. Okay. I've already done that for us all. Okay. Um, but we, we see how in 2 Thessalonians, after the day of Jesus, this is around 60 AD, okay, way after Daniel, we see that this prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled, okay? It's still something that's out there, all right? And this guy is going to come, he's going to exalt himself to be higher than God, saying that he's God, and, John, or, and Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, don't you remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And he says in verse 6, and now you know what is restraining. Something's restraining all this from happening. Why isn't the Antichrist on the scene yet? Why isn't the day of the Lord happening yet? Why is it? Something's restraining all of this from happening. That he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So there's a restrainer, and when something happens where he's taken out of the way, then it's all going to break loose, okay? So Bible scholars believe that that restrainer is the Holy Spirit in Christians today. Those who are born again have the Holy Spirit in them. They are living for righteousness. They are standing up for holiness. We, even in our weakness and in the midst of a wicked world, we still have our hand in what's going on in the political world. We're fighting, you know, uh, against the forces of wickedness. We're helping with bills and measures and calling senators and running for office. And, you know, in the midst of it all and the corruption, there's still some good ones out there. You know, there's the church and we're supporting and we're helping and we're praying. We're praying for our president, whoever they are. We're praying, we're witnessing, we're evangelizing, we're the presence of Christ in the earth today. And when he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way, we believe it is the rapture, in, the, in the Latin, the raptus, in Greek it's harpazo, the catching up by force. When he is taken out of the way, then right away, what we've been studying is going to begin to happen for seven years. There's going to be this great move called the tribulation where antichrist will come on the scene 
He's the man on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6. And he is going to, he's going to try to take over. And he's going to for a while. He's going to take over the world. Okay. Uh, it says in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We may not have it on the screen, so uh, just uh, either listen or flip there. Then the lawless one will be revealed. So the restrainer is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will come and consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. We're going to see that happen in a number of weeks still when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This is all satanic stuff. Remember at the beginning of Revelation chapter 13, it was the dragon standing on the sand in front of the sea, raising up this beast. Okay, so all that's happening here, this is all satanic stuff that's happening. It's according to the working of Satan. There's power and signs and lying wonders in it all. And with unrighteous deception that happens among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. People who've heard the gospel, heard the story of Jesus, have been pleaded with by their friends, family, loved ones, preachers, turn from your sins and come to Jesus, be forgiven of your sins, be given new life, live for him. There's such peace that passes understanding. There's a mission for you. There's hope, there's life, there's the hope of heaven, there's paradise awaiting you. No, is the response. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. And those individuals will just be duped so hard. They are just, I mean, they just, they got nothing going on in here or in here to resist the lying wonders of Satan. No strength. And you're pretty prideful and arrogant to think that you can. I can make it on my own against Satan. Like, yeah, you really haven't studied any history, have you? Okay, uh, and for this reason, this is, this is on top of all of this, God will send them, this is, pause, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, okay, I know we've been all over the place, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a big passage for you to know concerning all of this, and on top of all of this, God himself will send a strong delusion over them so that they will believe the lie. This is part of God's judgment upon people who wanted nothing to do with him. They've rejected Jesus, his plan of salvation, his sweet and precious blood that was shed to wash away their sins, and they said, I can make it on my own. And so the devil's going to come and he's going to deceive. And part of God's righteous judgment is God himself is going to just say, you know what? Have it your way. Here's a good, strong delusion for you so that you can believe the lie. It goes on to say that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, we've made it far today, haven't we? He made it through verse 1 of chapter 13. <laughs> verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet are like that of the bear. And his mouth is like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power his throne, 
and his great authority. So when you read Revelation chapter 13, this beast comes up. It's got seven heads, uh, ten horns, and ten crowns. Yeah, sorry if I'm messing it up. But uh, So we're reading that. You know, we're starting to learn a little bit from Daniel and kind of getting a little bit of what's going on. But then this next verse, verse 2, we're talking about leopards, bears, and lions. So what does that tell us? What do we know already from prophecy about the end? Have we read anything today about Lions and tigers and bears, oh my, or leopards and bears and tigers, okay? Yeah, of course. So this king who's going to come on the scene, this ruler who's going to come, that Satan is going to bring about, God ultimately, sovereignly is letting this happen, causing this to happen. It's all part of God's judgment. You've got this guy coming on the scene in his kingdom. It's going to be reminiscent of Babylon. It's going to be reminiscent of Medo-Persian Empire. It's going to be reminiscent of uh, Greece. And it's going to be, at heart, a revived Roman empire. Now, Rome always prided themselves that when they would take over an area, they wouldn't destroy the culture of that area. So when Rome came into this area that had already had a Jewish background, had already had Babylonian background, Assyrian background, uh, Egyptian background, uh, already had uh, Persian background, already had Grecian background, they kept that pridefully as part of their empire and so this revived roman empire that's going to come on the scene it's a little confusing at the moment this antichrist who's going to rule it all he's going to keep some of that flavor of it all um verse three and i saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed It is 1137. Can you do me a favor and just, we're going to be Prineville people today. We're going to do this thing. Like we are going to get through verse 10 today. Okay. And it's going to go a little faster at times, but guys, there's a word from the Lord for us today in what we're seeing right here. And if you know that the antichrist means in place of Christ, so here's a guy that's coming. He's going to exalt himself to be God, above all gods. And he's coming in the place of Christ. And then you read that one of his heads looks as if it's been mortally wounded. And then all of a sudden his deadly wound is healed. What does that cause us to think if this guy's coming in place of Christ? In the words of Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, as if, right? This guy comes on the scene, thinks he can act like Jesus, has a wound as if he died, okay? You can underline that word, as if he'd been mortally wounded. And then, oh, what do you know? I came back from the dead. It's never been done before. It was my idea, okay? He's acting like Jesus, people. And so what is this going to cause? It is going to cause people to be astounded, and they are going to follow the beast. Verse 4, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 
wonder turns to worship. How did he do it? How does he do it? It's a mystery, right? I know I've been classically trained in um, the dark arts. I try not to do it during the pulpit very often, but wonder turns to worship. Divine worship that belongs to the creator only turns to devil worship. This is demonic stuff. The beast, or excuse me, the dragon from chapter 12 that created this, he's worshiped because of the beast. People marvel that this guy has some sort of a head wound. The language speaks that it come from a sword, a tiny sword, a dagger of some sort. And then he, you know, this, this wound, he died, he rose from the dead. This is incredible. Let's worship Satan. Okay, that's what they're going to do. They worship the beast. This is Satanism. This is satanic worship that's happening. Who does that? Only the weird people are out on Halloween and they, you know, kill cats and, you know, go up to the woods and all that kind of strange stuff, right? No, it's going to be everybody's into this. Everybody, the world will be in wonder that this guy can do this stuff. And it seems like this, this dragon is behind it all. Satan desires to be treated like God. He always has. He always will. And what we read in 2 Thessalonians just a few moments ago in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, is that the coming of the lawless one is going to be, it's going to be according to all sign, types of signs and lying wonders. There's going to be so much deception. He's going to trick people, and then God's going to say, yeah, and I'm going to send strong delusion so that you guys will just all believe it. They worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? You know, in Beauty and the Beast, it was, kill the beast, kill the beast. And it's gone to, who is like the beast? So fantastic, you know? He's so wonderful. This is ripping off praise that only belongs to God. In the Song of Moses, in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Isaiah chapter 46 speaks against this type of idolatry that would worship created things instead of the creator. God says, to whom do you liken me and make me equal to and compare to me? That we would be alike. They lavish gold out of the bag and they weigh silver on the scales and they hire goldsmiths that he should make a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship They bear it on the shoulder and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things that were not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I shall do all my pleasure. You're going to worship that? And we all say, yeah, it's ridiculous. Who would fashion something out of gold and, you know, pay someone to fix it or chop it down in the woods and carve it? And then pack it somewhere and set it up and just... We would. You would. We go to Nepal and we go to Pashupati and we go to the Buddha, the two great Hindu and Buddhist sites in the whole world. And we go there and we watch people just pay homage to a dead God, to no God. And you know what the people from Prineville say? That's us. That is us as Americans. 
We give our time, our energy, our money, our effort, our resources to everything under the sun, and we give Jesus jack squat. That's us. That's the American church today. That's those who are playing games with God, who are saying they are Christian. It is those who will fall away in the end. It are those that are looking for, it's those who are looking for some sort of religion, but they deny the power of the true religion, Jesus Christ. Verse 5 of Revelation 13 says, and he was given a mouth. Sound familiar? This is a new passage for us. This, we're going into it, but now you know Daniel, so you're getting it. He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years, where he would continue or literally make war. That's what he's going to do the time. He's going to make war against those who would oppose him. Iron says, but the God whom he denies has limited his sway, for power will be given him only to continue for three and a half years, 42 months. Verse 6, the end is in sight. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So what are some things that this blasphemy, slander, reviling is going to be against? It's going to be against the pure and holy name of God. It's, the name of God speaks of his authority. And he's just going to go off on God and his authority. He speaks against God's tabernacle, which is interesting because the Antichrist is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so he's going to have some aspect of like, oh yeah, we're all good. Let's all just worship however we want. And Jews, of course, you need a temple. And, and yet he's going to blaspheme God's tabernacle. And he's going to change something in the tabernacle to fit him just a bit more and his ways just a bit more. And another thing he's going to blaspheme is God's redeemed. Those who have given God glory, those who obey the word of God and keep the commandments and the testimony and have, as the book, gospel of Mark says, obeyed the gospel. They've heard the gospel that we cannot make it on our own. We are not righteous enough. We are not pure enough. We are not holy enough. We, from the beginning, have inherited sin into our lives, and then we've heaped sin upon sin by choosing to disobey God and to sin. There is no way that we can make it and stand before God and be received into the presence of God for all of eternity, standing in our filthy garments that we've got on. We understand that God came as the rescuer from our sinful state, that he came and lived a perfect life that we never did want to live, let alone could ever live on our best day. Then he was betrayed by his friends and his own people. He was set on trial and there were lies and perjury against him in the courts of law. He was then taken out to the hill outside of Jerusalem after he was scourged, whipped, beaten, and mocked, and he was nailed to a tree, to which the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. And in the great exchange of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. 
So as we hear that, God has ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and said, do you want that? And we say, I want it. I need it. I got to have it. I've got no hope without it. I obey that gospel. And we're born again. We're saved. Our sins are washed away. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of us and changes our heart and our mind. So now we know God. We can understand the Bible as we read it. We love one another. We serve one another. And we adore our creator. And we're going to live for him. But there are those who are not that. And Satan, the the Antichrist, this beast, will mock those who obey. Verse 7, it was granted to this beast, the Antichrist. Again, notice the words granted or given. This is given by the devil to the beast, to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this is world power. There's a global domination that's happening. And he will continue for three and a half years to fight against anyone who believes in Jesus from that point on. Now, we know that the Jews from our last chapter, they have ran away and they're hiding in the wilderness right now. These Jews that have come to know the Messiah as Savior, they've come to know Jesus. They are Messianic Jews. They've run away. And if you look back in chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon couldn't touch them in the wilderness. They were protected. And so chapter 12, verse 17 says, so the dragon was enraged with Israel And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So these are, call them Gentile believers, call them tribulation saints. These are people that have heard the gospel in the tribulation period. It's not the same as we are today because we have the Holy Spirit in us. It's a different dispensation, a different work of the Holy Spirit. But these who keep the commandments of God, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are the offspring of Israel Satan hates them, Satan's going after them, and the Antichrist goes and makes war with them, okay? And we've read that multiple times in Daniel, this uh, day even. Moving right along, verse 8, you guys still with me? Muster up some of that strength to continue on. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Well, I would never, not me, I would never do that. You don't worship him now. You don't obey him now. The pleas have been given to you the cries from family friends pastors elders have been obey the lord jesus come and know him come and love him come and taste and see that he is good and he is glorious and he has a plan for you come not gonna do it it does not look good for you my friend it does not look good for you and if you cannot stand with jesus now you're going to have a very difficult time standing with and for Jesus, or even surviving in the most severe catastrophe the world has ever known or ever will see in any time, past, present, or future. And I fear for you that you will worship him because you're worshiping him now. Those will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. At this point, if you're not a believer in Jesus, in our text, you'll worship the Antichrist. But that is if your name has not been written in the book of life. The book of life. It's a registry in which God inscribes the name of those chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. 
It's one of the mysteries of Christianity. It's one of the mysteries of salvation. It's called soteriology, the study of salvation. And here's the mystery of it. In the New Testament, we read that God predestined Christians to be Christians. From the foundation of the world, he preordained, foreordained, he elected and he called and he had this sovereign work to which he knew what was going to happen and he called people to be Christians. And one day they will be Christians. Now the mystery of it all is that on this end of things, like we resist the Lord. On this end of things, we hear and we call and and we hear the calling and we hear the plea. And yet the mystery of it is that the Lord, he calls and he enables. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we must believe. We must obey the gospel. All the sovereignty of God and in the mystery of mysteries, he's also said, now you believe me. The Coast Guard, the lifeboat, we're here right now. I'm here to save you. My arm is reaching out. Just reach up and grab me. Just believe in the gospel and be saved. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right here, my hand is out to you. And the mystery of it all, C.S. Lewis said that God's sovereign plan and calling from the heavens and man's responsibility to believe the gospel and obey the gospel, C.S. Lewis says they're like two pillars of truth that go up to heaven and somewhere in heaven they meet together. We don't really know how it works. God's sovereignty, well, he said it, it's going to happen and you've got to believe, please believe, you know. And it's been said that, you know, outside of heaven, there's a gate. And on the outside of the gate, as we go towards heaven, it says, whoever will believe in me. And then on the inside of the gate, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. It's a great mystery. It's a great paradox. And yet, the tension of them, too, helps hold it all up. It's incredible. C.S. Lewis said, I'm sorry, it was D.L. Moody that said, God save the elect and then elect some more. And so I ask you today, the interesting, here's an interesting thing before I ask you this. The book of life, this is something that I've been studying this week. The book of life has names in it that were written in there from the beginning of the world. I want to ask you something. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written in the registry? Well, I'm an American, and I vote Republican, and, you know, I'm kind of rich, and I've got a nice hairdo, so yeah. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. You are resting in all of your pedigree, and it is not going to go well with you. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? It's interesting when you read the scripture, you got Moses saying, Lord, if you're going to deal treacherously with Israel, then blot my name out of this book. When you read the New Testament, it speaks of people's names being blotted out of the book of life. And in the end of the book of Revelation, there's a day when all of the dead will stand before God and they will be judged and people will be sent to hell on this day and books are opened. And everything that man has ever done, oh, what have you, what's your name? Okay, so you've done this, 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 and 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 this. Pretty shameful, huh? And this, and this, and you've done this. And you think you're just going to waltz on in here? And then another book is opened, and it's the Lamb's Book of Life. And anyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, because it's the Lamb's Book of Life, 
because their names have been covered by the blood of the lamb because they have repented of their sin and believed in the gospel. And so I ask you today, as the worship team comes on up, is your name written in here? And I believe that today you can know that it is. I believe that today you might even hear pen put to paper and that you can call upon the name of the Lord and in the midst of the mystery, you could hear your name being written in. I believe that if you call on the name of the Lord today, you'll be saved. You know, a lot of pastors that wrestle with this mystery, they say, God bless those Calvary Chapel pastors. All it takes to be a Calvary Chapel pastor is a pair of jeans and a Bible, and somehow they get ordained. I don't know what the deal is. And God bless those Calvary Chapel pastors because they believe that when they preach the gospel, people are actually going to get saved. They're not like, well, I don't know if this guy's name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, so I just probably shouldn't even ask. I'm asking today, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I'm asking today, are you saved? You've got to worship somebody. Are you worshiping the beast even today? Are you worshiping the system of this world? Are you saying no to God? Then you are with those who worship the beast. It's a scary place to be in our text today. Or are you those who, you've believed in Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The next verse in our text today says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Oh, it's so confusing, and there's beasts, and there's, we're going back in the Old Testament. We flipped all over the Bible, and I just, hey, just, just open your ears for these final moments. Jesus wants to save you from your sin. Jesus wants you with him. Jesus loves you. Jesus was slain for you. And maybe as you would just put your things aside right now and just go to prayer with me. I've just been so burdened in reading this and we didn't even finish the chapter. Most pastors I read only went through verse 10 and I was like, I can make it through the, no, not doing it. I've been so burdened and because this chapter I see the names and faces of so many people who have a facade on, they have a mask on. Their Facebook status says Christian. I remember being a kid and asking people, one of my favorite questions was, what religion are you? I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, me too, I'm Christian. But that's as far as it goes. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? but you don't do the things that I say. And I would ask you the same thing today. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your life? Is he the king of your heart? And if you can just honestly be honest with yourself and maybe even ask the Lord to show you, perhaps today you would say no. But I see that that needs to change. See, my fear is, I believe that we're living in the day of the Lord and that he could come back at any moment. And that so many family, friends, and loved ones who 
Facebook status says religious Christian. But their life doesn't reflect the life of a Christian in the Bible. That you are going to be easily deceived. And I just, it's crazy. Our lives are open book these days because of Facebook and social media. I just see so many Christians. They just, they listen to preachers that are false teachers. They're preaching false doctrine. And you only like listening to this guy because he promises you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Has nothing to do with your sin problem being forgiven. Has nothing to do with the glory of God. You're just selfishly following after these false teachers out there. And I just see that you are going to be easily duped, my friend. And I believe that today is a day that God has graciously given you because he loves you. He's given you this day to say, forgive me, Lord, for wandering away from the truth of Jesus. I'm coming back to you today. Forget the beast. I don't want to worship him. I want to worship Christ. We're going to sing a song today called, O Come to the Altar. And it's a time where we can be aware of our sin that Jesus is showing us. He showed us regrets, mistakes, all-out rebellion against him today. And we can come to where he laid down his life. We can come to the gospel. We can come to the altar. And we can be forgiven. We can be set free. We can be redeemed. And as we remodeled this building a number of months ago. We built this sanctuary with some extra carpet up front as a place where anyone who would want to come and bow their lives before Jesus, they could have a, a place to do that. And I want to invite you today, if you know that you've been bowing the knee to stuff that is satanic in origin, and it might seem all clean and pure and even something that our culture does normally and regularly and is even applauded in our culture but you know that it is a distraction from satan to pull you away from the faith i want to give time during this last song for you to come forward to the altar to come to the stairs to come to a place of humility to bow the knee to bow your heart to be like nebuchadnezzar who bowed down he was made like a beast but he was humble and in that humility, he found Jesus. During this last song, if you know that you need Jesus, that you are a helpless case without him, come to the altar. Find redemption and grace and salvation in him. During this last song, come forward.